Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. I want to welcome you. My name's Chad. I'm the senior pastor here. We're glad to have you with us this morning to be in the Word with us. And we are a church that's under the Word. With that said, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. We'll continue reading here this morning and we'll be reading only verses 6 through 8. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would hear from the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning, that he would speak through his word, by the Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We pray, Father, as we contemplate this scene, this climactic point in the history of the creation of man, in this portion of Genesis that we would understand how weighty this sin is. How the fall has affected us all. Cause us to hate sin and to love Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this last week, We watched an evil tyrant attack a sovereign nation. He did so in order to attempt to build a legacy for himself. A legacy that is about him restoring what he considered the glory days of the USSR. The day that the Berlin Wall came down, Vladimir Putin commented that that was the worst day of his life. He lived in eastern Germany at the time. And it has been his desire to restore the USSR to her former glory. Men and women and children are dying for the sake of the ego of a dictator. Ukraine is arguably, I don't know if you are aware of this, is arguably the number one missionary sending country in Eastern Europe potentially in all of Europe. The church in Ukraine is growing and strong there in many regards. If you've seen it on social media, you will see Christians in subways cowering from the Russian attacks singing hymns while their country is under assault. Why do we see 
such evil in the world? The answer in the most generic sense, and sometimes the most generic sense is the best answer I can give you, and sometimes it's unhelpful, but the answer in the most generic sense is sin. Due to the guilt and corruption of Adam that has been passed down to all of us, we see this kind of wickedness. John Bunyan, who's famously known for writing The Pilgrim's Progress, that English tinker who was jailed for many years, he wrote quite well about the devastation of Adam's rebellion. This is not from The Pilgrim's Progress, but he actually has a commentary on the first several chapters of Genesis. And I want you to hear what Bunyan said. By this act of these two, meaning Adam and Eve, the whole world became guilty of condemnation and eternal judgment. By this came all the blindness, atheism, ignorance of God, enmity and malice against him, pride, covetousness, adultery, idolatry, and implacableness that is found in all the world. By this, I say, came all the wars, blood, treachery, tyranny, persecution with all manner of rapine and outrage that is found among the sons of men. Besides all the plagues, judgments, and evils that befall us in this world with those everlasting burnings that will swallow up millions forever and ever. All and every wit of these came into the world as the portion of that of mankind for that first transgression of our parents. This is all a result of sin. It is due to the rebellion against God's law that started right here in Genesis 3. So this morning... I want to look at how this state of affairs came to be. I dealt last week with the nature of the temptation and the tempter that Satan is and brought in the first five verses. Satan tempted Eve and Adam who was with her. Interestingly, one thing I didn't note last week that you might not pick up in the text because we've dropped the plural and singular you distinction in English. You guys know that. There used to be a singular you and a plural you. That's King James isn't just trying to be fancy when it's like thee, thy, thou, thine, etc. Right? It's distinguishing a plural and a singular you. We've dropped that. Unless you're in the South, then you have y'all, right? We've dropped it. But if you read Genesis 3, when Satan addresses Eve in verses 1 through 5, the second person pronoun you is always in the plural. You all will not surely die. Your eyes, both of your eyes, in other words, not both of Eve's eyes, but both of you, both of your eyes will be opened. Satan is tempting Adam and Eve in this scene. And Eve is deceived by the serpent. But Adam is no less a sinner here. In fact, as I told you in Genesis 2, Adam is the federal head of all mankind. He is the representative of all mankind. That's who he is. 
And in order to take Adam down, Satan begins by driving a wedge between Adam and his wife by tempting her into sin and him with him. And in Adam's fall, because he is our federal head, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. So this week, I want to focus on Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And as we do, I want to cover two main points. First, the fall of Adam and Eve. And then second, the fall that affects us all. It's really simple, isn't it? The fall of Adam and Eve. And second, the fall that affects us all. Now, I'm going to tell you some of the effects of the fall and original sin and its corruption and the way it affects us. We're going to continue to walk through as we go through Genesis 3. So I'm going to pick up some of it in the main today. And we'll leave some of it on the table for the future. But let's look first at the fall of Adam and Eve. The fall of Adam and Eve. And I want to consider the fall of Adam and Eve really under two headings. The first being the narrative of their fall into sin. So let's just look at the narrative, the story of their fall into sin. And then second, the nature of their fall into sin. Uh, What is the nature of that sin? So let's look first at the narrative of their fall into sin. Look at Genesis 3, 6 through 8. Pay attention to language because I'm going to make some observations about the language right after I read it again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, I want to make a few observations here just to help you get a hold of or really bring home, hopefully, I think, the sort of drama of this scene. Genesis 2-4 begins a section in the book of Genesis telling us about the history of man, the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, and driving us all the way through the end of Genesis 3-24, and there are multiple scenes, and the center, the climactic scene, is this scene that we're reading about the fall of man into sin. We, if you will, reach the climax of the central scene in the narrative of Genesis 2, 4 through 3, 24. So that's the first thing I want you to grasp. But what's interesting about that is the climax of the scene is so short. It comes at us so rapidly. We don't pick it up as well in the ESV, I don't think, in their translation as we ought to. But there's a kind of rapid-fire action of the scene that's jolting. In Hebrew, one of the ways that you can move through something and sort of bring it very quickly and catch somebody's attention is through what's called the Vav consecutive. You don't really need to know what that is, but I'll tell you how it sounds if you're reading it in Hebrew. There are 11 Vav consecutives in these two verses. In the two verses, Genesis 3, 6, and 7, 11 Vav consecutives. I want you to hear the rapid impact of it. Listen. And the woman saw, and that it was a delight, and that it was to be desired, and she took and she ate, and she gave some, and he ate, and the eyes of both, and they knew, and they sowed, and they made. Do you hear how fast that is? 
The scene is startlingly fast with the vav consecutives. Just going and this verb, and 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 then the verb, and this, and that, and this, and that. Eleven of them in two verses. It's so fast moving, and it's trying to catch your attention at this climax. The third thing is there's an inversion, an inversion of the roles that characterize the story of Genesis to this point. And I want you to pay attention to the inversion of the roles that characterize Genesis to the point. The man listens to his wife. Look at Genesis 3. She gave, it says that in verse 6 at the end, she took some of his fruit and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. He listens to the voice of his wife, if you will, or obeys his wife rather than the Lord. There's an inversion there. He's obeying a creature rather than the creator. The woman listens to the serpent, another kind of creature, in fact, a lower form of creature, listens to the serpent instead of her husband and the Lord. And we begin to see the self-deception inherent in the act of sin. This is one that you may have noticed right as we were reading, if you remember Genesis 1. But throughout Genesis 1, we hear this refrain. We hear it in Genesis 1.4, 1.10, 1.12, 1.18, 1.21, 1.25, 1.26, 1.27, 1.28, 1.29, 1.30, 1.31, 1.32, 1.33, 1.34, 1.35, 1.36, 1.37, 1.38, 1.39, 
We see that when the Lord declares, it is not good that man should be alone. And then we hear these verbs. So the Lord takes the man and the Lord takes the rib to create Eve or to make Eve a wife for him. In Genesis 3, we hear the same verb. Eve takes the fruit and decides man can now provide for himself. It was God who made all things that Adam and Eve needed. And now it's Adam and Eve who take fig leaves and make themselves clothing. Genesis 3, 7. And the verbs are picked up intentionally. God took and made. Now Adam and Eve are taking and making. They once walked with God in the garden and ate from the Lord's bountiful provision of trees. You guys sing the inversion. They once walked in the garden with the Lord and ate from his bountiful provision in the trees. Now, in Genesis 3.8, they hide in fear behind those same trees. Those are no longer seen as God's good provision. They're seen as a hiding place from the Lord. Everything has been inverted. The creature has rebelled against the creator. And that really leads us to the second point, the nature of their fall into sin. So that's sort of the narrative. What's the nature of the fall into sin? You're likely already hearing what the nature of their fall into sin is. I hope you're catching it. It's rebellion against our holy God and his law. God commanded them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they broke that command. And they broke that command on the basis of their own assessment of what is good and true and beautiful. But here's the question I've heard, I don't know, countless times. Maybe it's come into your heart and mind. Maybe you've heard it from other people. Here's the question. What's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit. Seriously. I mean, all this wickedness and death and devastation due to eating just a piece of fruit? Eating a piece of fruit seems like it would barely register on our scales of injustice and wickedness. Well, here's the big deal. They are literally attempting to overthrow the sovereign God and to replace him with their own self-rule. We only question what the big deal is in this scene, either because we're ignorant of what's happening here or because we've diminished the God against whom we are sinning. We've come to believe that we are the standard for the law. See, our tastes and preferences determine how egregious a sin really is. Doesn't seem like a big deal to me. In our corrupted hearts and minds, we have come to believe that sin is against standards that we've set for ourselves. See, I let myself down. That's not really who I am. I'm not the kind of person who does that. By the way, do you know what kind of person is the kind of person who does that? 
the kind of person who does that. If you did it, you are, by definition, the kind of person who does that. Or worse, I need to forgive myself. You see, I know God forgives me, but I have a hard time forgiving myself. Think of the arrogance of that statement. As if somehow your sin against you and your standard is worse than your sin against God and his standard. As if somehow God is less just and holy than you are. Of course God forgives me, but I have a hard time forgiving myself. Think about Psalm 51. Does David pray that? For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against me and me only have I sinned and done what is evil in my sight. Is that his prayer? Friends, your sin is not ultimately against you and your desires for yourself. Sin is not ultimately a violation of your tastes and preferences. Further, sin is not against a society of collective tastes and preferences. You don't take a poll of the society to determine what's right and wrong. If a whole nation concurs with abortion or euthanasia or sexual promiscuity or divorce or the LGBTQ agenda, we could just go on. Gossip, lying, cheating, theft, pornography, cohabitation, if the whole society agrees with it, it is still wicked sin to participate in it. Whole societies have embraced wickedness throughout generations, and we all know it. What we need to grasp is that sin is against our holy God. Sin is lawlessness. If you haven't read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, I'd encourage you to. One of the things that R.C. Sproul said is sin is cosmic treason. Sin is the overthrow of God. That's why eating the fruit was so devastating. It was not the fruit per se. It was the rebellion against God's commandment with regard to eating the fruit. It was deciding God will not be the judge of what is good. We will be. We will be. Note how Genesis 3, 6 describes their rebellion against God's clear word. Look at the three terms there in Genesis 3, 6, if you will. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so the fruit of the tree was good for food, and that second, it was a delight to the eyes. Good for food, a delight to the eyes. And third, that the tree was desired to make one wise. John refers to these in 1 John 2, 16 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the sight, and the lust of pride. God had given them an exceeding bounty of provision, endued them with 
vast riches, and yet their hearts began to covet the one tree from which they could not partake. By the way, the words for delight, if you look there, the tree was good food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. In the Hebrew, those words are from the same root of the word to covet that we find in Exodus 20 and verse 17 in Deuteronomy 5 verse 21 when he says in the 10th commandment, thou shall not covet. Paul thus refers to being covetous as idolatry in Ephesians 5.5. Herein is Adam and Eve's sin. They did not heed God's voice, but that of the serpent. They were not humble in receiving God's law, but prideful in asserting their own rule. They were not thankful, but covetous. They pursued self-fulfillment rather than honoring God's name. The Westminster Larger Catechism defines sin this way. Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Adam and Eve sinned, and in Adam's fall, sinned we all. So let's consider that. Our second major point today, the fall that affects us all. Look at Genesis 3 and verse 7 and 8 again. After they ate, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now we're going to come back next week to this, particularly starting next week's patch will start in verse 8. But here's what I want you to pick up today. Their eyes were opened as the serpent had promised. Remember he said, your eyes will be opened. Their eyes were opened as he promised. But note what they now know. Note what they now know. The eyes of both were open, verse 7, and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked. Did they learn from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the kind of wisdom they ought to have learned? No. What did they learn? Well, they learned the guilt and shame of their sin and wickedness. That's what they learned. They experienced evil by participation in it. How do I know that? Well, three ways. First, they sew fig leaves together and cover their nakedness. They knew they were both naked. They were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Second, the word naked is interesting here. It's actually a pun in Hebrew with the word crafty. If you look at Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That word, following Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, those words are punning on each other. And Moses seems to be saying that there's a sense in which Adam and Eve are going to now bear in some way the image of Satan in their false wisdom and rebellion. They're now bearing his image in some way. Third, when the Lord God comes 
walking in the garden, the man and his wife hide themselves. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Don't miss this detail. The last time we heard the phrase, the man and his wife, was in Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. And now we hear the man and his wife are naked and ashamed and hiding in fear of the Lord. Listen, because this is so a part of our current culture, We've been so triumphed by therapy, by the notion of self-actualization or self-fulfillment or whatever you want, whatever, pick your term, self-whatever. We've become so enamored with it that we've actually begun to believe as a whole culture the lie that Satan is telling here that self-fulfillment and self-rule promise to you happiness, wisdom, and life. But please learn the lesson. Though every talking head on TV is whispering with the tongue of Satan, though it's run through our educational system and taken it over whole cloth, though it comes from every political mouth, please learn the lesson. Self-fulfillment and self-rule that you even feel coming out of your own heart the desire for, do not deliver happiness, wisdom, and life. They don't deliver it. They deliver misery, guilt, shame, fear, slavery, and death. As their eyes are opened, they know their guilt And they're ashamed. And they're afraid. This is not the godlike behavior Satan promised. You know what gods don't do? Look, eat the fruit, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. You know what gods don't do? They don't go scurrying behind bushes to hide. But they do, they scurry off behind a bush in fear. And so fig leaves on to cover their shame and their guilt. They no longer walk with God in the garden in freedom and holiness. Now they run from God in fear of their guilt, their uncleanness, as he walks among them in judgment. And next week in verse 8, we'll look at the fact that this language, cool of the day, Sounds lovely. This isn't like God's taking a walk over at the central coast with Adam and Eve, right? And they're diving behind some bushes. This seems to be speaking to judgment in the whole of the context. We'll look at it next week. Their eyes have not been opened to anything that will free them and cause them joy. Their liberty is not hereby improved because they now sin. Rather, their eyes have been opened to their own sin and guilt and folly and shame. See, Satan beckoned them with delights, delights that ultimately enslaved them and killed them. 
That's how sin beckons us, though, is it not? Now what it does? I once had a close friend who, not, that's not a full stop. I once had a close friend, full stop. No. <laughs> I once had a close friend who told me about his adultery. I've had several people tell me about their adultery, but this was a bit different because he told me about the whole story in some detail, including what was occurring in his own heart. And he told me about the appeal of the other woman, how she looked good to him. She looked pleasant to him. He was struggling in his own marriage. His own wife seemed not to attend to him in the way he thought she ought to attend to him. And so he began to be attracted to this other woman who paid quite kind attention to him. And he liked it. And he committed adultery with her. And he said he remembers right after committing the act, thinking it's good. Though God says in his word in the seventh commandment, it is not good. He judged it was good. And he committed and he told me that he says right after it happened, I couldn't shower enough to get the uncleanness off me. I tried. I tried. And so he began to cover it up and fear he'd be found out. Look, friends, sin beckons us. It promises us delight. It delivers to us guilt and shame and fear, uncleanness, slavery and death. Sin is spiritual adultery. And guilt and fear and shame and slavery and death are its consequence. Death comes as spiritual separation from God so that we're his enemies and we rightly fear his judgment. Death comes as physical death, the corruption of our bodies and the separation of body and soul. Thus from dust we come and to dust we return. Finally, death comes as the second death or eternal death. It's been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And in Adam's fall, sin we all. We are all guilty and corrupt in Adam as he is the federal head of all mankind. I'm going to press into that more in the coming weeks, but I want you to hear that. But by God's grace, Adam and Eve, taking the forbidden fruit of the tree and eating, is not the last word. You understand it could have been. God had every right to justly cast Adam and Eve to hell at that moment and bring humanity to an end. Every right. But it was not the last word. Rather, God made a promise to send a second Adam, one who would obey God's word in every respect, who would be tempted in every way yet without sin, who would never look at God's judgment and say, 
but I judge differently. He would always say, God has judged rightly and obey. A second Adam who would go to the cross and pay for our sins there, the debt we had incurred. His body would be broken, his blood would be shed, so we would be forgiven of our sins. So that sin, guilt, and shame, and death that follows would not be the last word. Salvation would be. Listen, I know we aren't taking the Lord's Supper this morning. It's a bit of a shame because I want you to hear something that you might not have thought about before. When the Lord Jesus meets with his disciples during Passover week, the last night of his life, he sits down for the Passover meal and he takes the bread and says, take and eat. And the cup says to drink from it and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood which is given for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, when Adam and Eve took and ate, it meant death for us all. When Adam and Eve took and ate, it meant death for us all. But when Christ offered his body and blood and said, take and eat, it meant the forgiveness of sins and life for us all. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, due to the work of Christ, the words take and eat are not only the words of the institution of our fall and death, but take and eat are the words of the institution of the covenant in which we're saved. Look to him and be saved. And if you know him, be thankful. Give thanks to him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ, for his work among us. We recognize that we are sinners, fallen, those who have asserted self-rule, pursuing self-fulfillment, rather than honoring you and submitting to your rule. We have so often, so often overthrown your judgment, those things that you say are not good, we have called good and participated in them. And we have incurred guilt and death ourselves, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Father, you have kindly sent your son. He gave himself for us. And he said to us to take and eat. And this for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.